Shalom Naso. This afternoon we'll return to the meditative cultivation of empathetic joy. And I'd like to put it in kind of three flavors. Pursue it in three flavors. The first one, really attending to the kindnesses that others have shown us, so make it quite personal. Every person will have an individual, unique meditation from childhood on, simply reflecting upon that. Doing so can really be very helpful for just coming out of despondency, just recalling all the kindness that one has received from others. So reflecting upon that in a spirit of both, of course, rejoicing, taking delight in the kindness, the virtues of others, but obviously arousing quite spontaneously a sense of gratitude as well. So there's one kind of sweep through. And then you might recall, we did this before, then sweeping through the same life, but this time now, more in the mode, and this is classic practice, there's nothing new from my side, but this classic practice of taking delight in one's own virtues. It's not only the kindness one has manifested towards others, as, as important that is, as that is, but also times in which you've simply cultivated inwardly, cultivated qualities of the mind, mindfulness, compassion, whatever it may be. So just scanning through, taking delight in your own Dharma practice, in its more internal, its more external fashion, scanning through all of that, taking delight in it. And then we can move to a third phase. And this would be moving into the Mahayana approach to empathetic joy, which instead of simply arousing an emotion, delight, empathetic joy, is more, as you're quite familiar now, more once again in the mode of an aspiration. An aspiration. May we all never be parted from genuine happiness and the causes of genuine happiness. May I make this so. Oh, may, I, may I be so enabled that I can do so. When we come to that third one, again, that's where we really venture into deep waters and it really it invites in deep reflection upon our own lives and how we can lead the most meaningful lives possible. Especially in this regard, and that is just immediately so many ideas come to mind of how we can be, do something good in the world. So many different ways. But when it comes to genuine happiness, we're really doing all we can to bring people to experience their own genuine happiness and doing all we can to help them never be parted from that then we see this is a much taller order. Now, Atisha, when he addresses this point implicitly uh, in his Lamp for the Path to Enlightenment, then he says, if you don't have extrasensory perception, you can't really be effective in serving the needs of others. Remember that one? Suddenly the bar is way up there. Oh, I thought I, thought I could do a lot of good, and now, oh... Where's the uh, pole vault? How do I get over that one? You know, And so there it is. It's quite, a, quite an interesting, quite a, how do you say, a blunt, punchy, provocative statement. That if you re- and, and again, he has to be referring to genuine happiness because it's so obvious that we can help others in a myriad of ways without extrasensory perception. But I think he's, what he's getting at is really to, to help other people find genuine happiness and so deeply help them, guide them, assist them, that they're never parted from it, you'd have to be really approaching the status of a great healer, a great physician, right? Uh, like the Buddha himself is called the great, great physician. 
And any physician knows, whether you're practicing Western medicine or you're practicing traditional Tibetan medicine or Chinese or Indian, you better have some pretty sophisticated methods of diagnosis. So for Tibetan medicine, and I've seen this in action, it's amazing what a really accomplished Tibetan doctor can do, reading just from the pulse. So Dr. Yeshidunan, being consummate master of both of these, both taking the pulse, where you're picking up 12 different pulses, 12 different pulses, right, on superficial, medium, and deep levels, um, three fingers rotating to the left and the right, and that's on two, two wrists. So he's picking up all the vital organs, organs with three fingers. And he told me, because I lived with him for more than a year, a lot, of, a lot of work with him together, he told me a really highly qualified traditional Tibetan doctor can learn just about everything he or she needs to know just from the pulse, but then you get a, the backup, and that's doing this urine analysis. And it looks really funky. I mean, it looks really simple, like you, you, know, you pour your, peel, peel, your pee, your urine, into a little, a little bowl, a little cup, a little white cup, and then he stirs it with a chopstick. And he looks at it. What's going on in his mind when doing that, you really cannot imagine, because that takes, that takes years to master all the things he's checking out. And I kid you not, but he said you can get almost everything from the urine. You can get almost everything from the pulse. But when you do them both, then you come to a lot of certainty about what you're getting you know, from these two vectors. It's really quite an extraordinary thing. And so, but without that, and then of course there's questioning, there's questioning the patient, and there's doing visual observation. But the two real penetrating modes of diagnosis are the pulse, where the pulse is like the messenger. The pu different pulses are like the messenger of different organs in the body, systemically wind bile and phlegm, and so forth and so on. And he has done things, I mean, I've translated for him probably hundreds of hours when he had patients in. And he had a lot of people think he was clairvoyant. He never claimed it, and I don't know whether he was or not. And he, he said, you can get this from the pulse. But he would say, he would do things like, you know, check out the pulse and said, about a year ago, were you living in a, in a cool climate, and did you lie in the grass a lot? <laughs> oh. <laughs> and more often than not, he was right. You know, he would talk about dietary behavior and oh, diet behavior and so forth from the past. And so often he had it right. And then he said, and he would he would tell me, you know, the reason I do that is to give them confidence. Because I already know it, but I want them to know that I know it. So when I give them the treatment, they'll have all the more confidence in it. And what we euphemistically and ridiculously call the placebo effect, which is really the mental effect. He wants to get as much benefit from that mental effect as possible. So he's giving them the herbs, but you know, you do your share. I want to see some trust, some belief, some confidence here. You know, do, you do your share too. Now it's not just, this isn't just junkies giving, this is very sophisticated herbal compounds. So this is a long tangent. Where am I going with this is, if a Tibetan, traditional Tibetan doctor doesn't have any urine, doesn't have any pulse, then he's kind of blind. All he sees is the surface. He says, how do you feel? And so he gets a verbal report, and he, and he looks with his eyeballs on, on the person's eyes, face, and so forth and so on, but he's really blocked. And so if one were really a healer of the soul, a healer that could really, the, the whole point is to bring a person to a state of such well-being, of such healing, then Atisha was getting at, well, you really want to be clairvoyant. You want to have extra sensory perceptions. So you can see through the surface and see into the depths. 
And then following that line where he said, if you really want to be of service, you must have extracentric perception. Then the next line you might recall, oh yeah, to do that you have to practice and develop and achieve shamatha. Right? So, as we reflect upon individually, uniquely, reflect on how can I be of greatest service? We might consider, well, if you would really like to be of service, to lead people to genuine happiness and to so profoundly lead them in their un own unfolding, they're never, never separated from that, then you might want to develop extrasensory perception. But of course, if where you really like to lead them, if, would be onto the path, onto the path of the bodhisattvas, then it's hard to lead people where you've never been before. So you might want to, to develop your bodhicitta, get a truly serviceable mind, and then, then develop uncontrived, genuine bodhicitta. Then just, you know, as a security precaution, kind of like getting insurance when you buy an airline ticket, just in case something goes screwy, spend a little bit of extra so you can change the ticket or whatever, or get the insurance of practicing vipassana and getting some insight by way of vipassana to seal your bodhicitta so that it never falls off. You never lose it. So you've secured, secured your, uh, your bodhicitta. So this is a little bit like on the airplane where I spent a lot of time, and I should have this memorized by now, I don't, but more or less what they say is every single time you get on the plane is in the unlikely event of a loss of, of, a loss of cabin pressure, some little doohickey is going to fall from the, <laughs> come from the sky and put it on yourself first. Strap it firmly on your, before you give it to anybody else, right? And so that's what Atisha is saying and so many other, other If you'd like to lead others to the Bodhisattva path, you might just want to get the oxygen on your own nose first, get on the path, secure yourself, and then lead everybody onto the path who would like to go. Of course, this is not evangelical. It's people who would really like to get onto the path, but you're there to help them. So I think there's a pretty strong argument of if one really wants to be of service to others, just go ahead and achieve shamatha and apply it to achieving genuine bodhicitta, seal it with vipassana, and then do whatever you like. You know, then you're free. Then, then whatever you want to do. You know, then you're free. Do whatever you like. And you might think, oh, then you just have to become a dharma teacher. Or then you just have to spend your rest of life as a yogi. That's not true. That's not true. And so here we can look back to really the golden era of Mahayana Buddhism in India. The 7th century, the 8th century, around that period. Nalanda was just booming. It was perhaps the greatest university in the world, quite possibly. 7th century, 10,000 students, 1,000 faculty. How many stories? Was it 14 stories? I think it was a 14-story, can't remember exactly. 14-story central library. It was enormous. But it was a 10 to 1 student-to-teacher ratio, and they studied all kinds of things. My wife just had attended a conference in the capital of Mongolia, convened by the Tibetan office and the Mongolians there, all about how to revitalize the Nalandu tradition. And by the way, also try to revitalize Buddhism in Mongolia. But the Nalanda tradition here was this great university system. And why I mention it? It's a, it's a tangent, but I think a very, very relevant one. And it was the point here is something that I longed for as an undergraduate when I was in my late teens, never found, and therefore just wound up abandoning Western, civil, Western civilization and Western education in particular. And that was coherence. Looking for and not finding coherence. Where's the center? I took courses all over the place, 
from medieval German to art to music to mathematics and, and chemistry and biology and physics and history and literature. I don't know what I didn't take. But it was just a scattergun of all kinds of stuff. And there was no coherence. It was just a whole bunch of stuff, a lot of knowledge, but it never rallied around anything. It never congealed and never coalesced into kind of a mandala of knowledge. Ah, this is what it's all about. Whereas, and then when I was 20, when I was living in Germany, I read Hermann, Hesse, Hermann Hesse's Das Glasperlenspiel, or Magus du Ludi. And I said, now that's what I was looking for. Too bad it doesn't exist. You know, and that is a system of education where all the branches of knowledge would be all tied into each other, and there would be a hub, a gravitational center that would make it all sen sense, and there would be a real center to it all. So it's a beautiful vision. I, I, I haven't read the book now for 40 years, but I certainly loved it when I read it a long time ago. Well, this was really quite close to what they had in Alanda 1,500 years ago. And it's on this point that I'll end, but I think it's meaningful. And that is in this great university, and, and pe people would come as from as far as way as China and all over Asia. They would travel for months to get to this university to get an education. And what they were offering here, it was largely Buddhist, but it was not sectarian in, in a sectarian fashion or uniquely Buddhist. And what they had was, okay, there is a hub to knowledge, this the center of knowledge, and it's called, I'll just stick with the, um, this, the Tibetan because I'm more familiar with it, Nangrikpa. Inner knowledge. I think it's called Adyatma Vidya. But it's inner knowledge. That's the center. Well, it kind of makes sense. But what is inner knowledge? It's about the nature of the mind. This is center. This is what it's really fundamentally all about. The most indispensable, crucial, central knowledge a human being can have. And this is central to our whole education system. And that is fundamentally, of course, about achieving enlightenment. Realizing the nature of the mind all the way down. And so that's central. There is a center, and that's what it's all about. Everything is pointing here, to the center. And then, that's one of five major fields of knowledge. And then the other four, and as soon as I heard about this years ago, I was just enchanted, now from the Tibetans, carrying on this Nalanda tradition. And that is there are four other primary fields of knowledge. One of these is the knowledge of healing, knowledge of healing, of medicine. And so that would include biology, physiology, anatomy, and then all aspects of healing, which means you better know a lot about botany and about minerals and so forth, the elements, because you have to know about all of that to heal. And it's not only healing human beings, healing animals and so forth, but it's primarily physiological healing. It's medicine. And that's one of the primary ones. So think of a hub, and there's one of its spokes going out. And then there's a second one. In Tibetan, this is Denzikrikpa. And this is knowledge of logic, of reason. And we could say that's both qualitative reason, as in logic, but also quantitative reason. Mathematics would fit in there. Okay? And so there's that, there's that branch. So epistemology, logic, and all of that. Pramana would fit in there, about valid cognition. And then there's the, the interesting one, unexpected one, the science of sound. Science of sound, and that's linguistics, it's language, it's literary arts, it's poetry, it's novels, it's playwrights. Nowadays it would be screenwriting as well. But language, knowledge of language above all, but more broadly the knowledge of sound, within language being a very en enormously important subcase. And then finally, the fi final one, is the knowledge of the creative arts, or the creative sciences, creative technology, and that's making stuff. So that would be visual art. 
It would be engineering, like knowing how to build a house or a bridge. It would be handicrafts, clothing, a pottery, and so forth. It would be creative activity of architecture, of course. Uh, it would be the creative arts of just making stuff, overall making stuff, right? And so those were the four. And the beauty of this, as Shantideva says in the Guide to the Bodhisattva Way of Life, a bodhisattva, now this is a person who has developed that uncontrived, spontaneous, genuine bodhicitta, there is nothing that a bodhisattva won't study in order to be of service to others. So he doesn't just study Buddhism. Might study architecture, might study mathematics, might study gardening, child-rearing, housewifery. Housewifery, is that something? I, I wanted to say midwifery, but house jumped in there. How to help women deliver babies, that would be very useful. And so there's nothing a bodhisattva won't study in order to be of benefit to whatever needs sentient beings have. Well, that's cool, that's very generic, very universal. But here are four branches of the medicine, of the logic, epistemology, of sound, language, and then finally the creative arts. And the idea here is that when these are understood as a matrix, as a mandala, with the inner knowledge in the center, each of these four are like petals of a flower, and they are themselves can be presented by a bodhisattva as skillful means to come into the center. So you might have someone, let's say a teenager, but it could be a person of any age, that says, you know, what I really want to do is I want to be an artist. Another one says, what I really want to do is go into business. I like to make stuff. I like to I build, build things or whatever. Another one says, I love language. I want to be a poet. I want to be a writer. I want to be a journalist. Another one says, uh, another, you know. Another one says, I want to be a mathematician. I want to be a philosopher. And that's their passion. And so the Bodhisattva wasn't... Philosophy? Are you kidding? Why don't you study Dharma? Study, study inner knowledge. You want to be a builder, an architect? Get real. Come on, study Dharma. Well, they don't want to hear that. So rather, and since they're not saying, I want to kill people, you know, they're not, <laughs> they're not coming. Those people you have to persuade, well, change your mind. But people just want to build buildings. There's nothing wrong with that. And so you take the energy that's there, and then you guide them. And you see, all right, good. How could architecture, or building, or gardening, or what have you, how can we bring this through skillful means and have this draw you into the center? So the Bodhisattva, as skillful means, we'll see all of these will be means for drawing people to enlightenment. Now, in classical India, when I heard this, it just blew my mind. In classical India, a person who has mastered all five of those, who is, who is really a master of the inner knowledge, but really has a good familiarity with all of the other four, a Renaissance person, a polymath, that person is called a pundit. A pundit. That's a pundit, right? So when we think of how can I be of greatest service to others, to repay the kindness of others, to help others find genuine happiness and never, never lose it, never lose this scent, then we might think large. First of all, you might want to, again, in the unlikely case of death, you might want to secure your own valve to the path to enlightenment first. And that is achieve shama to develop irreversible bodhicitta. That might be really good. So you're not just kind of wandering around some lifetime. Where am I? Where am I? Not knowing what the heck you're doing. And so doing that first. But then as you envision the breadth, the range, the diversity of ways of serving sentient beings and skillfully leading each one into the center. Having said that, it's not just all the fountains flowing into the center. But the center flows from the center 
flows the juice out into all the four. So we see this in the West as well. So many sublime forms of art, architecture, poetry, music, and so forth have been inspired from, from what? From people's profound Christian practice, from their Jewish practice, their Muslim practice, exquisite the Taj Mahal, you know, and so forth and so on. We see this. And the Taoist tradition and the Zen tradition, how much extraordinary beauty. Where did that come from? The, the garden, the you know, the flowering, the flower, the flowers, and all of that that we see. I mean, it's exquisite beauty. Where's that coming from? Well, I, strong, I strongly suspect that's coming from some pretty deep Zen insight that's flowing out into the arts, into the creative arts, into, into, into all of these fields. And so it's like a fountain where the four flow into the center, and then the four, from the center, it flows out to the four, and out to the four, it flows out to all sentient beings. Ah, the good old days. What the heck am I doing in the 21st century? I think I got off on the wrong stop. <laughs> I just want to be back there in the 7th century. At least Tibet 200 years ago would be fine. Somehow I got here. Yikes. So, to envision, to have fun, envisioning, to be creative, imaginative, letting your imagination soar. How could you be of greatest benefit? In the short term, and the long term. So let's have fun with this meditation, okay? Good. Find a comfortable posture. Settle your body, speech, and mind in the natural state.
arouse your memory and your imagination. As you attend to the kindness and the virtues of others, over the course of your life, you may of course attend to those who've explicitly shown you kindness, helped you in a myriad of ways. But you may also attend to those who you may, may never have met personally, but who have inspired you. People from history, people living during your lifetime, anyone who is blessed and enriched your life through their example, their works, their deeds. Scan through your life and take the delight in the virtues of others. Breathe out this light of appreciation, of gratitude, as if you were sending them a gift of acknowledgement.
and scan through your memory once again, this time reflecting upon and taking delight in your own virtues, cultivated within and manifested in the world. This is what imbues life with meaning. So take delight in each instance.
And then as you let your imagination play, envisioning how you may most meaningfully repay the kindness of others, expand the field of your awareness, taking into account not only those who've directly been of service to you, but all of those myriad sentient beings, indirectly over time, independence upon whom you've been provided with food, shelter, clothing, medicine, all that you've needed. How can you best repay the kindness of others in a way you'd love to do to help each one find genuine happiness and never be parted from such well-being? With each out-breath, breathe out the light of your vision. And if you are so inclined, with each in-breath you may imagine breathing in the blessings of the enlightened ones to enable you to breathe out such wonderful service to those around you.
Release all appearances and let your awareness rest in its own place, illuminating and knowing its own nature. So, four letters in today's mail. Oh, and none of them are terribly long. Jolly good. So, I'll start with one I open first. Um, so, the question is having encountered Dharma, I commented yesterday, having encountered Dharma is reason enough to be happy. I do believe that. And so it comes to my mind, says the person who writes the note. It's an anonymous note. How did I meet Dharma? If I'd like to share the story, I'm sure many would love to hear it. Sorry, it's not a practical question. You're hoping it's going to be an inspiring one. It could be. Uh, I've told the story many times, and so I'll try to keep it short. <laughs> yeah. Bless me that I may learn how to speak short. <laughs> yeah. Well, I met Dharma first by way of my parents. I was raised in a Krishna family. Lots of very good Dharma there. Uh, many of the teachings of, well, the teachings of Jesus are so rooted in virtue. So that was clearly, and I remember my grandmother, especially my, my mother's mother, just a wonderfully just kind, gracious, compassionate person. I've wanted to emulate so many of her qualities ever since I was a child. So that's where I first encountered Dharma, in Christianity. There are elements of the, the doctrine of mainstream, non-contemplative Christianity I just couldn't make any sense of. I couldn't believe it anymore than I can believe that cows jump over the moon. I just couldn't do it. And so I just felt, this can't be my path when certain elements that are said to be integral to it just don't make any sense to me at all. And yet there was a strong sense that there's a core there that's really, really good, and I'm not going to relinquish that. 
At the same time, I was being educated to be a scientist, which I wanted to be one from the time of the age of 13. And so that was all of my youth, was aimed towards that. And then, but that by the time I was in college, feeling this, just this dissonance, this real dissonance between, on the one hand, the only religious worldview I was familiar with, and that was Christianity, and then the scientific worldview, which was like riddled with materialism, like bacon is riddled with fat. It was just hard to see the scientific worldview without, it, without the materialism part, because nobody was teaching that. And what really struck me was just that nobody seemed to mind. I mean, there were Christians all over the place who adopted science, and many, many scientists were Christian, and they didn't seem to mind that this was a schizoid way of viewing reality, because they really are incompatible. Not science and Christianity, but materialism and Christianity are just flat-out incompatible. You can't be both. And so... It's hard for me, 40 years later, remember, to remember how explicit this was and how much I'm imagining my own history. But I do know that I was just experiencing a pretty profound and pervasive disillusionment with samsara. Uh, and I'd had it pretty good. I mean, there was just nothing wrong with my life at all. And so, during my second year of university in California, in San Diego, I took a one-year course on India. One term, 10 weeks, was devoted to the religions of India, taught in a very, very academic, dry, fashion in which Buddhism was depicted as quite a pessimistic religion because after all everything's suffering. Nevertheless, despite the very arid way in which it presented, something kind of clicked in a quiet, muted way. Went off to Europe, hitchhiked around that is prior to my third year of university, where I was going to spend the year in Germany. I was fluent in German since I'd been raised partly in Switzerland. Or oh, hitchhiking around the country, around the Europe, around Western Europe pick up a book on Dzogchen at a youth hostel in Switzerland, in an idyllic, almost celestial little village of Interlaken in the Swiss Alps. Stayed there a couple of, couple of days, and somebody left behind, because I'm, 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 I don't have a, a tendency for thievery. I, don't, I just don't generally steal. It's not, my, it's not a habit. So I don't just see a book, oh, I'll just take it. But I, I had my eye on this book. It was the Tibetan book of the Great Liberation. And I just kept on looking at it, and somebody quite clearly left it behind. They said, okay, left it behind it for me. <laughs> and so, I, so I, I took it. And I read this, and it just rang bells all over the place. I could hardly understand anything. It's Dzogchen, and I had almost no background in Buddhism at all, but there was just something there that I thought, this is it. This is totally it. And so I was reading this as my roommate from college and I were gradually hitchhiking our way north from Switzerland, up through Scandinavia, out to Bergen on the west coast of Norway, where my friend and I were parting ways. He was going for his junior year abroad in Scotland. And the summer's coming to an end. I'm heading back south, solo, hitchhiking back south to Göttingen in Germany, where I was to spend my third year of university. And the night before my friend took off, early the next morning, the night before that, there was just kind of a crescendo, like a climax in my mind, having read enough of this book, feeling books can take you so far, and just sooner or later you've got to meet a teacher. And so I do remember that this is factual. I know I didn't make this up, but I wrote in my journal, I've got to meet a teacher, and it's got to be a wise old man. That's it. Got to be a wise old man. It's give me some real direction here, because this, this, there's something here, and I, but I want to meet somebody who's going to give me some direction. So... I wrote that in my journal. The next morning, early 6 o'clock, my friend took off, got on a ship to sail off to Scotland. And for the, first, for the first time all summer, I'm solo with my big 
hip, American hippie backpack and a guitar, of course, the requisites of a... <laughs> not to mention the traveler checks in my back pocket. And hitchhiking then from this long road, I don't know, a couple of hundred kilometers from Bergen to Oslo, and then heading south, and got a ride out to the middle of the wilderness. Somebody dropped me off, and then I couldn't get a ride. For hours went by, nobody picked me up. Uh, rumor had it that some hitchhiker had robbed rob somebody that picked him up, and so they were skittery, a bit scared, a bit anxious about picking up. So I heard, I don't know if it's true or not, but I waited by a f about five hours on the side of the road, nobody picked me up. And so being the big good American hippie that I was, I had traveler's checks, I said, hike back to the nearest town, hop a train and get, get out of this area and try to find another better area for, for hitchhiking. So I walked against the gain grain of the traffic, um, not expecting, I'd, I'd given it a good shot to try to get a, a ride, and nobody picked me up. But as I'm walking against the grain, which is walking backwards, uh, away from Oslo, back to Bergen, because that's where the nearest town was, uh, I let my thumb dangle, because it didn't cost me anything. And, you know, and, but really, I was disengaged. I was just letting my thumb be, but I was not attending to it without distraction or grasping. <laughs> I was just daydreaming, I think. And to my mild surprise, a little black VW Volkswagen pulled over to the side of the road, and my mind and my thumb were so disengaged, I had no idea why he'd pulled over. <laughs> and there was this little guy, uh, obviously in the driver's seat, and he beckoned to me with... And I said, oh yeah, I, I, was, I was hitchhiking. <laughs> Thank you. And so, I said, sure, sure. So I, I ran over to his car, threw my backpack and guitar in the back seat. That filled the back seat. I sat in the passenger seat, and we drove off, in now in the direction of Bergen, which direction I wanted to go. And he was a little old man. There are a number of them in <laughs> Norway. This was one of them. And I don't think he took me more than 10 minutes. And on a road of that length, 10 minutes is really worth nothing at all. Hitchhiker, you go from this point in the wilderness to this point in the wilderness. <laughs> Congratulations, you know, it was nothing. But in 10 minutes, he learned that I was very interested in Tibetan Buddhism, teachings on the nature of awareness, and I learned that he was a Buddhist monk who had lived in Norway with Tibetans. And he had a fascinating story, life story. He told me his life story. And he lived in Norway. He was born in Germany. And he spent his summers in his little chalet, his little cottage up in the mountains. And that's where he was going. It was a little, little off-road, off just go way up in the mountains where he had a little cottage. And he was an artist. He, paint, he did uh, traditional painting of bowls, which is a, a handicraft of, of Norway. He learned that, and that's how he made his living in the summer. And in the wintertime, it'd get pretty cold up there, so he would then, during the winter, having lived for years in Asia, loved India, lived in Nepal, lived with Tibetans in Nepal, uh, he would spend his, his winters then traveling around Europe, giving lectures on Buddhism and Indian culture. I learned all of this in 10 minutes. He learned that I was interested in Buddhism. It suddenly dawned on me, I found my wise old man. Uh, at that time, this is 1970, 1970, 40 years ago. Uh, I don't know how many Buddhist monks there were in Europe, but I think you probably can count them all on the fingers of one hand. And those who'd lived with Tibetans, I think you can count them on one thumb. So I found him, he found me, and we were, just got so engrossed on our conversation that he, 
when it was time for him to drop me off and head up into the mountains, he said, we'd like to stop and have an ice cream or something. You know me. <laughs> ice cream, you just, ice cream or ice cream, you know? So, so sure, we pulled over, we had an ice cream, we got talking further and further. And um, I asked him for advice. He gave me the simplest of advice, but I have not forgotten it 40 years later, and I've remembered it many, many times. Uh, and I'll tell you, it will sound very trivial, but it wasn't trivial for me, and it was very timely, and it was just enough and not too much. I asked him for guidance. What shall I do? Because this, this really calls my heart. And he said two things. He said, do some good and help the Tibetans. That's it. That was enough. So I, I did get a ride. I didn't die of starvation in Norway. And got down to Göttingen, and this is where I'll end the story. Uh, got down to Göttingen, where I'd been planning to study ecology, is my major field of study, because I wanted to become an ecologist. Philosophy as a minor. Got there, hadn't done much background research when I was in California. I hadn't done enough to find, to discover that in Göttingen, University of Göttingen, they didn't offer a single course on ecology. Not in 1970. <laughs> Nothing. And philosophy, I just found really dry. Really, really dry. I couldn't stand it. Uh, but very shortly after I arrived there, unpacked my bag, settled in, I found out that there was something called the Indologische Seminar, Indology Department, very well established, one of the old institutes of the university, uh, an institute for the study of India. So I traced up there and found that there was a Tibetan Lama who had just recently been appointed there by the Dalai Lama to come and teach Tibetan language. And I remember meeting him, this wonderful rapport, incredibly sweet, very gentle, extraordinarily humble man, very slender, very, very meek, very quiet, shy. And I remember meeting him, and when I left that center, it was a big house, I remember skipping down the road. It was up on the side of a hill. I was just skipping, like a kid, just skipping with joy. I thought, this is it, this is it, this is it. So that's how I first encountered Dharma. Everything else flowed from that. And everything flowed from His Holiness, because he appointed, he appointed that Lama there. I became his only student. And then everything flowed from there. So that's how that happened. So, I've heard you say in the past, talking about settling the mind that we are not morally responsible for whatever arises in our minds. That's quite true. You have a bad dream, or a nightmare, or whatever, all kinds of things. We are responsible for our in, um, intention and motivation. Yep, I stand by that. However, I've also heard you say that there is moral, moral responsibility only when there is cognitive fusion with thoughts. Yeah, you're not, that is, you're not going to have an intention unless you have an intention. Right? If I night some idea, I could rob a bank arises. Well, there's no cognitive fusion. You just see that. And then you think, I'm going to rob a bank. Well, then there's cognitive fusion. So intention happens if and only if there's some fusion, some identification with a mental process, and you go for it and say, yes, I'm going to have some ice cream. I will not rob a bank. So, so there is moral responsibility only when there's cognitive fusion with thoughts. How can this be if cognitive fusion is involuntary and not intended? 
Well, we don't intend all of our intentions. Right? We don't intend to have mental afflictions. We don't intend to have cognitive fusion with them. And sometimes we're just doing stuff without having had the moment to pause and to reflect. We just get fused. It's called samsara. It's called a non-lucid dream, a, a microcosm of a non-lucid dream where we're doing stuff and it may not be from some lofty panoramic vision of this is now what I intend to do. We're just doing it and we're doing it deliberately and somehow we fell into the cognitive fusion and intentions are arising and all of this can be veiled in a cloud of delusion just as we can intend to do things in a non-lucid dream. And we are morally responsible for things that we intend to do in a non-lucid dream. Right? So that's how, so we you know, can intend all kinds of things. I'm sure people who, who get addicted to nicotine intend many times to not smoke. And many times they find, lo and behold, they're inhaling. They didn't want to have that intention, but somehow it happened. They intended not to. <laughs> After this one's over, you know, so it happens. It happens out of delusion. Could I please talk about a relationship between moral responsibility, karma, and the Buddhist perspective of, on free will? Massive. So I'm going to answer really shortly. I've written a whole paper on it. It will be published in the Journal of Consciousness Studies later this year. And that same essay, big one, like 30 pages on free will, will be published also in my next book to be published with the Columbia University Press. So I could easily, obviously, take up the next 25 minutes with that. All I'll do is, we'll, we'll de in this regard, it's a wonderful, very deep question. But there are two more questions waiting here. Uh, and it is, in fact, germane to our practice here. And, and I will say specifically this. Recall, first of all, Shantideva's remark right at the beginning of the eighth chapter, the chapter on meditation in A Guide to the Bodhisattva Way of Life. And you've heard this before. A person whose mind is distracted dwells be between the fangs of mental afflictions. So as long as we're caught up in OCDD, our, our psychological immune system is down which means the defenses are down, which means the mental afflictions can come in, which means we can be fused, cognitively fused, with those mental afflictions before we're even aware of it. And the mental afflictions, like driving the chariot of attention, can ram us right into intentions, and off we are doing all kinds of stuff that then we have much leisure to regret. You know? So, free will is, first of all, not letting that happen, where we don't even... We don't even notice the point at which we lost it. So mindfulness of breathing could be a step in that direction, of at least, you know, being freer and freer and freer of OCDD, which makes us utterly vulnerable to every one of the mental afflictions, so that when we want to think, we think. We do so deliberately, even freewheeling, free you know, creative thinking, daydreaming, but be aware of what's going on. See the children at play the thoughts coming up, rather than having them coming from the backside, grabbing you, throwing you in the trunk, and zooming off at 60 miles an hour. So first of all, mindfulness of breathing can be a big step of not falling into lack of freedom by just being absorbed in the little microcosm of samsara of obsessive, compulsive, delusional thinking. So there's one big step in the, re in the, in the realm of freedom. Right? But the second one, and this is where I'll stop, is settling the mind. And Paul Ekman and I, in our cultivating emotional balance and the teacher training of that that we co-taught just a few weeks ago here. This is one point where he and I differ on various points in terms of big worldview and 
and so forth like that. When it got to really practical stuff, and David, Carissa, and and old what's her name over there, Hedy, uh, Hedy, uh, I think you'll bear witness that when it came to the practices, there wasn't a point of, of there was, I don't think there was a point of struggle, like Paul saying this, but Alan says this, what do we do, what do we do? Of course, we, how could we possibly agree on everything in terms of our worldview? I mean, I spent the last 40 years as a Buddhist. He hasn't. I mean, we're not going to agree on everything. But we're very, very close friends. And I think it was obvious to everybody a great deal of mutual affection and respect. And I don't blink my eyes when I respect him and love him with respect to his worldview. He's a very good man. But when it came to practice, here was a big point of, of how do you say, total agreement. And that is, as Paul would say, now speaking as a straight scientist and a really sharp one, highly accomplished one, this ability to monitor our own mental states, mental impulses and emotions, this is a key to freedom. From the moment that the spark of an emotion arises to the flame of an activity manifesting, to be able to be aware of that interval between the spark and the flame is the key to freedom. So we may not have that much freedom about what emotions arise just spontaneously, instantly, in response to un unexpected stimuli. Unexpected stimuli. I'll give one very sad one. I, it really troubled me when I heard about it. There's a very dear man who was house-sitting for my wife and me back in Santa Barbara, Mongolian man. Wonderful, lovely man. He's just such a sweet man and intelligent, just a good man. And he's working himself through college, working his way through college, philosophy, is his field, and he does it by driving a taxi cab at like 2 o'clock in the morning through the t wee hours of the morning, and most of the people he picks up are drunks. They're drunks. Yeah, that's what you get at 2 o'clock in the morning. And so, but, you know, it pays the bills. So this is what he's been doing for months. Well, it's a tough job, because he gets all kinds of really, the seamier side of life, he sees what Santa Barbara has to offer. Well, it was only a couple of months ago there was a man and his wife got in the back seat. He drove them. And uh, not quite sure why I'm telling the story, but I'll finish it. And so, and it's wee hours of the morning. He drops the man and his wife off. And the man gives him some money. He, does, he, he shortchanges him. He doesn't pay him proper proper amount. And so my friend, who's an incredibly gentle soul, he was a Buddhist monk for years. Now he's married to a lovely Mongolian woman. He gets out of the car and says, uh, excuse me, sir, I don't know exactly what he said, but I know this man very well. And he would have said something like, sir, so I'm sorry, but you shortchanged me. I, I need another, what, $5, $10, whatever. The man walks over to him. And then in English, we call it sucker punch. When you have no idea that you're about to be belted, the man just belted him in the side of the face, knocked him to the ground. My friend, you can imagine this is unexpected. He's knocked him to the ground, and then seeing him on the ground, then he came over and he kicked him, and he kicked him, and he kicked him. And all my friend can do is just go fetal and just try to protect his head. Right? And then the man walked off. Yeah, the man just walked off. And so there's my friend lying bleeding, going off to the hospital, emergency care, multiple bruises, abrasions, all kinds of stuff. And uh, the man eventually sent him five bucks and said, keep the change. So I say that. That's a startling story, but you have no... What, what, are you going, what emotions will arise when you hear the story? What will emotions arise if somebody, for 
absolutely no reason, just belts you and then kicks you mercilessly on, your, on the ground. He never struck back. He never had a chance, but that wasn't even the issue. He just wanted his $5 or whatever, $10. So we don't know the simple point. So pardon me, if that, that, that really got to me. Uh, we don't know what emotions are going to arise. But the freedom is before the emotion is enacted to recognize the emotion before we act on it, before we cognitively fuse with the emotion, cognitively fuse with the intention that comes out of the emotion. And there we are launching into the world. That's the key to freedom. And settling the mind in its natural state is the key to that freedom. It's really practical. Okay? In practice and experience, what is the difference between the space of the mind without thoughts and awareness of awareness? Good. One is an object, one is a subject. Uh, and that is where attending to the space of the mind, attending to it, has a vector, it has a direction to it. So right now, and I give an, as this is an analogy, I'm attending to the space of the room and all of the people in it. And I've got my head back, so the appearances of everybody's body in this room, including my own, I can see here, the appearances are all there. And I'm aware of the space in which the appearance of all these bodies are manifesting. Right? Now, all of you could, one by one, could file out of the room, so there's, and then I could lean forward so I can't even see my own body anymore, and now I'm just staring into empty space. If you are all here, I'm now just attending to the space of the room, but there, you can imagine, no one in it. I'm just attending to an empty space. Well, I'm attending to something, and it's empty, and it's the space, the space of the room. Right? It's a very, very, very close analogy. You're attending to the space of the mind, populated by thoughts that come and go, come and go, then they all go. And there you are, you're attending to space. It's three-dimensional, it's bright, it's not shiny bright, but it's illuminated by your own awareness, and you're attending to it. And then while you're attending to it, should some thought occur, you'll see it instantly, because it's occurring right where you're attending. Just like if I'm attending to the empty room and then somebody suddenly walks into the room, I'll see them lickety-split really quickly. Right? In contrast to that, and this is why we did this step by step, if you're attending to the space, let's go back to the analogy, I'm attending to the space of the room, the visual space of the room, and then I withdraw my awareness and all interest. And imagine I, I do this single-pointedly into just the awareness of awareness. Then if I'm really single-pointed, I have not only disengaged my interest, but also my awareness from the space of the room. I don't see it any longer. And all I'm dwelling in is that luminous, cognizant presence of awareness taking place. And so, in a similar fashion, when you withdraw your awareness from the space of the mind and just rest in the awareness of awareness, you have withdrawn your awareness from space, even the space of the mind, and you're simply attending to that raw, immediate, sheer luminosity, sheer cognizance of awareness, of awareness that is there whether or not there's any space to illuminate. Now, there is space to illuminate, but you're not attending to it. Okay? So you can imagine, then, the culmination of settling the mind in its natural state. You're attending to the space of the mind and whenever arises, and then if we just imagine time-lapse photography, I mean, really quick movement along the nine stages, then you'd see, 
over time, less and less and less population, from the cascading waterfall down to ooh, ocean unmoved by waves. And then you'd find the senses imploding, everything converging in upon a space that is now empty, and you've achieved shamatha. And what are you attending to? Not the five physical senses, because they're not appearing at all. Not thoughts, they've vanished. You're attending to the object of mindfulness, which is the space of the mind and its contents, except for there aren't any contents, so you're attending to the space of the mind. That's what's left. Okay? Welcome to shamatha land. You're just attending to the space of the mind. Whereas if your trajectory, if your method along the nine stages is from the very beginning not attending to any of the five physical senses, not attending to thoughts, and not attending to the space of the mind either, in other words, not attending to anything that appears to awareness, but just resting in that glow of awareness of awareness, then because you're not very far along the path yet, appearances are still arising, thoughts will still come and go occasionally, just release them, release them, and you're just, to the best of your ability, maintaining a single-pointed, non-conceptual flow of awareness of awareness until you do go far along the path, in which case, just like everything fades out, and the thoughts are no longer like those meteors of thoughts, have just the meteor shower is over, and the awarenesses of the five and even the six senses have faded out. And all you are aware of is your object of mindfulness. And that is the subjective experience of awareness taking place. And your mind, coarse mind, is now dissolving, dissolving, dissolved into substrate consciousness. And all you're aware of is substrate consciousness. Welcome to shamatha land, but from the subjective side. Then you may just relax a little bit, and then you're aware of the non-duality that is not absolute ontological non-duality, but experientially, you'll not have a sense of the space of the mind, the substrate, being over yonder, and your substrate consciousness being over hither, but more of a unit of experience of just luminous awareness space, blissful, luminous, and non-conceptual. So that's that. So here's another question. In the collective encampment of meditators who study science and scientists who study meditation, is there a commonly agreed motivational statement? And if so, what is it? Thus far, this has been uh, definitely a piece-by-piece -piece type of study. In, uh, yeah, just every, there's no grand organization of people in, let's say, Atlanta, Georgia, who are doing some studies. And, and then the team at Madison, Wisconsin, and UC Davis, and there have been studies in UCLA. And there's been studies at, there must have been, at Oxford, because there's a center for mindfulness there, and then whatever's going on on the continent. And in Australia, there's been at least one study, probably more. So there's been no real networking big organization, no human genome project to tie all of these together. It's really a very young field, and so people are just doing it on their own. Uh, there's also research been done in the University of Oregon. That was in collaboration with some uh, Chinese scientists, and I think the research was, the data was actually collected in China quite sure it was. Um, and so thus far it's been very uncoordinated, unintegrated, just individuals getting their own grants, pursuing their own research. So I'm quite sure there's been no concerted effort, I don't think from any of them, uh, that we all agree on a motivational statement. Now what I can say for the projects that I've been involved with, up the 
So the cultivating emotional balance. Well, Paul Ekman and I were exactly the same page. He was, uh, he was not there to proselytize his beliefs about Darwinism and so forth and so on. It comes up. That's, that's not the point of CEB. I wasn't there to pitch Buddhism or try to convert people to Buddhism. Now, the CEBT, and this has to be known, when I was teaching CEBTT, the teacher training, there are a lot of references to Buddhism. There's no question about it. But I just felt that was in the spirit of honesty rather than trying to convert any of the participants to Buddhism. But since the meditative aspect of cultivating emotional balance all comes from Buddhism, for the sake of transparency and just, you know, just honesty, you should know where this stuff comes from. So if you want to do any further research, you know where to look. That really was my motivation. It was that simple. But now when teaching CEB itself, then there needn't be a single reference to Buddhism, let alone any Buddhist source or Buddhist terminology and so forth. You keep it clean, you keep it secular. So, and I would say that what I would love to see, this is my aspiration, and I know it was Paul's as well, that if a person who is a fundamentalist evangelical Christian who believes the universe was created 7,000 years ago and, it would like to, and such a person liking to cultivate emotional balance, that person would feel comfortable coming to CEB. And another person who is a die-hard Richard, Do Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens-style militant atheist who is, strangely enough, experiencing emotional imbalance, <laughs> wants to cultivate greater, that they would feel equally comfortable. And that could be a great forum to having, you know, atheist, materialist, evangelical Christians in the same place with a common vision. That would be great, actually. I think it would be very good. They might understand each other better. So that was the idea between CEZ. So Paul, Paul, Paul's motivation, my motivation, the same. And it came, both of us came from the Dalai Lama. Because he was the one that came up with the suggestion. Could you provide something that's secular, that would draw from the wisdom of the Buddhist tradition, the psychological tradition, put together something of practical benefit? Paul and I did our best. So that was shared motivation. And maybe I'll end on this point with the Shamatha Project. It was very similar. Uh, Cliff Saren also, he's a very traditional neuroscientist, materialist. A uh, lovely man, very ethical man. I think he was, sim he and his whole team, as far as I know, I think they were impeccable, really impeccable with the meditators. They treated them well, with respect, conscientious, very attentive. And I, I know some real friendships were formed among the meditators in the project and, and the scientists themselves. And we have some people, and I think you would, you would agree with what I'm saying. They were, they were a really good team, you know, weren't they? Nice people. Uh, they were not there just to manipulate us like lab rats. They were treating, I think, everybody with respect. Uh, and what was our shared vision? And there are other people on the team, almost all of them, you know, they're materialists. That almost goes without saying, if you're a neuroscientist or an academic psychologist. And so our worldviews are different. But we found common ground. We were really interested in the nature of attention, the plasticity, the possibility of training, the possibility of the benefits of training attention, and of course throw in the four measurables, and they were very interested in that as well. So. Can these practices help? If so, what are the benefits? Are there downsides? If so, what are they? So it was a very, very objective study. If there are, and I, I don't know all the data, but if, as a result of the three months, if there was any consistent, really negative effect, not just here or there, somebody having a bad day or what have you, but if there were any real clear negative side effects of that training, the scientists will know about it. I have no doubt they're going to publish it. And they should. We're not, we're not there to cover up, you know, my defects as a teacher, or whatever. So it's a very objective study. And we are there all with the same motivation, to try to do some good, because we felt this might have implications for education and human well-being. 
And so those, those two I can really speak, for, speak from. There's another one at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. I'm a consultant for that one, comparing the effects of shamatha meditation, compassion meditation. I know the man who's a PI, of course. He's a very good man, psychiatrist, very good heart. So again, I'm happy to collaborate because I have a sense of what his motivation is. So th those are the ones I know because I've been involved with them. The other ones, uh, Tanya Singer is a very fine neuroscientist. Has now got her own Max Planck Institute in Leipzig, Germany. I think she's a very good-hearted person. She's worked closely with Matthew Ricard. She's interested in the neurocorrelates of empathy and compassion. I think she's a very kind-hearted person, so I strongly suspect. This is speculation, but I think reality-based speculation that she and Mathieu share a very, sh very sh shared vision as well. So I think it would be good if this becomes more explicit, but thus far in these very uh, in infant days of the scientific study of meditation, this is what we're looking at. The reason for asking is I empathize with the yogis who refuse to, test, to be test subjects. Well, of course, you can probably tell I do too. Uh, since there is such a gap between the material and spiritual views, the materialistic and spiritual views, it seems to me the best outcome of such research would be a, a more detailed conceptual understanding, but not transcending let's agree to disagree. Yeah, that's for sure. I mean, I haven't become any more of a materialist, as you might have noticed, <laughs> despite all of the collaborative research I've done now for 18 years with quite a number of research teams. Um, and I don't know, I, I, I haven't asked, I'm not really, I'm not asking whether they become less materialistic. That's not why we got together, to try to convert each other's worldview. It wasn't the idea, it was to do something practical that would be a benefit. So, so this in itself would bring much peace to the world if practiced widely. Um, Brett, I couldn't agree with you more, which is to say I agree with you totally. Uh, to have people come together, and this is, to my mind, there are two very large areas here. One is people of different religions, very committed to their own religions. And I've seen it in action, coming together, very devoted, not trying to make some mega-religion that's kind of 35% Christianity and 40% Buddhism and so forth. No, 100% Buddhist, 100% Christians, what have you, coming together. And I've participated in at least one, no, more than one, because I've done workshops with Florence Freeman. But I remember one, it was in Prato, Italy. Prato, Italy, not very far from Florence quite a few years back. And it was a something like maybe a three-day seminar, something like that, workshop with something like 100 people attending. The two leaders of the workshop were His Holiness Dalai Lama and Lawrence Freeman. And His Holiness wearing red and Lawrence wearing white as a Benedictine monk. And uh, it was just lovely. What can I say? It was just lovely. The Dalai Lama didn't become more Christian. Lawrence didn't become more Buddhist recognizes there are significant areas where the worldviews are just different. And that's okay. That's not, we didn't come here to debate and see who wins the debate. We came here to explore common values and how we might learn from each other. And then there was the audience. And what was a little bit surprising, I think, perhaps to His Holiness and to Lawrence, was I think many of us might have expected, maybe I did, I can't remember, it's maybe 10 years ago, that among the people, there's, you know, there's usually a kind of a an aisle in the middle and the people are on the left side or the right side. I think we might have been expecting to see the, the red people over here and the white people over there. <laughs> you know, the Christians, white like Lawrence, and the red people, red like the burgundy robes of His Holiness. And that's not quite how it turned out. There were quite a number of people who were pink, you know, who were their guru, their lama and their yidam was Jesus, but they really, really liked Buddhism, you know. Uh, 
And then there were Buddhists who were very, you know, really regarded Jesus as the Bodhisattva. Or actually would take the Dalai Lama literally when he said that Jesus was a Buddha. He has said that. And so there are Buddhists that would take that literally. Not all, of course, but some. And so if Jesus is a Buddha from the Buddha side and, and the Buddha was a, a great wisdom being who teaches many elements that are core Christian values and principles and ideals and practical means to realize that's a big deal. A lot of Christians have found uh, that the Buddhism, Buddhism provides skillful means for them to go more deeply into their own experience in meditation, the cultivation of compassion, love and kindness, and so forth. So there's one area uh, that not only interfaith dialogue, but a real sense of communion, beyond collaboration, communion of really a shared heart and feeling very at ease with the difference of views. Dalai Lama attending Mass, the Christians, you know, I can remember maybe they were reciting Omani Pemu, I don't recall, but just feeling easy about it. And then scientists, and bear in mind, about half of 40%, 40-50% of American scientists believe in God, who responds to prayer. So we can't say scientists are the atheists, and then there's the spiritual people over here. Uh, many spiritual, well, many spiritual people are scientists, many scientists are spiritual. There are fundamentalists on both sides of the fence. But where we can find gatherings, like this love fest that we had at MIT in 2003, it was marvelous. It really was a spectacular event uh, with top-notch scientists, very good speakers, speaking with mutual respect, recognizing their differences, but all with something of a zeal, a very happy zeal, to increase our understanding. And with an openness, maybe I can increase my understanding by engaging with you. you know? So I think that really is of enormous importance. And if our mind center can be contributing to that by having teams of scientists come here, as we already have begun with Eddie and oh James, James here, James, uh, James Elliott was here doing some research in the CBTT. Oh, Joachim will be doing some research. Uh, and we've had oh interest from a number of scientists, really top-notch, world-class scientists from around the world. And I'm getting more and more inquiries. I really said they'd love to come here and participate in research to learn more. And the more that we have, again, not only the, what should we call them, the white scientists and the red Buddhists, but the more we have pink people. Like, Heidi, is she really a scientist? I think she's meditating too much to be a scientist. <laughs> and Joachim, definitely. I think we're winning him over. <laughs> no, of course, only in jest. But when we have scientists who are rigorously, professionally trained, taking more than a 20-minute-a-day you know, a interest in meditation, uh, but really doing some serious meditative practice, as both Hede and Joachim and James. James has done a three-month three retreat. He wants to do a lot more. Uh, as we find scientists really crossing the aisle, so to speak. Not in worldview, not necessarily. This has nothing to do with becoming Buddhist. If they want to do that, that's fine, on your free time. But it's the meditation, it's experience, which is what it's really about. And then having contemplatives, people really drawn maybe to Buddhism, maybe to some other contemplative path, taking more than a passing interest in especially the cognitive sciences, maybe physics for that matter. And so we find more and more hybrids. People are basically at home in one field, but throwing great big tendrils across the abyss to become really more and more versant. So I think there's a great promise there. The Dalai Lama spoke of this also of hybrids, hybrids, pink people. Okay, that feel at home in both worlds. That'd be, I think, 
Tremendous promise there. Great promise. So, did I put my carrier in here? Et voilà. Okay? Good. Enjoy your evening. See you tomorrow morning.